something that I like to see is a quid pro quo. I don't care whether they do A or B. I just want them to promise me that they're going to do A or promise me that they're going to do B. It's all to create the perception that I am a person who is willing to negotiate. The Diplomacy Dojo is a weekly discussion led by your board brother about diplomacy tactics and strategies. Let's listen in on what our players are discussing this week. I'll start by talking about negotiations in general, the theory of negotiations, not about negotiating in diplomacy per se, but how to negotiate anything. As I often say, diplomacy is testing many skills that are actually everyday skills that will help you in any situation or apply in many everyday situations. And the ability to negotiate well, that's just a skill that benefits anyone, right? Maybe you want to negotiate with your boss uh, regarding your salary, or maybe you want to negotiate with someone who's selling you some property and you want to find out you know, if you can get a deal. These situations where you want to negotiate come up every time, all the time for people. And the same skills that you would use in an everyday negotiation, they also apply in diplomacy. It just takes some thought to figure out how to connect those skills. When I am thinking about a negotiation, here's my theoretical model, that uh, I have some things that I'm willing to give and some things that I hope to get. And this other person has some things that they're willing to give and some things that they're hoping to get. But we don't know that. We don't know what's true for sure about each other. What are our limits? There's like a fog of war over the situation. I I don't fully understand the other side. I don't understand what are the things that are important to them and what are the things they're willing to concede. And that's on purpose because in a difficult negotiation, you don't want to give away too much information about what your boundaries are, because then the other side will ask for something that's right up against those boundaries and and get the best that they'll get the best of you in the negotiation. I'll give an example. Let's say that I have a car and I am thinking about selling it to you and you're thinking about buying it for me. And I know that uh, if you offer me $5,000 or more, I'll sell you the car. Now, I would like to get as much money as possible. I would like to get more than $5,000. But if you offered me $5,000 exactly, I would sell it to you. And let's say you're coming into this negotiation and you think, okay, I want that car, but I won't pay a penny over $4,000. Well, that negotiation is going to fail because there's just no overlap between what are your needs from this uh, a possible negotiated outcome and mine. I need at least $5,000 and you want no more than $4,000. So no matter what happens in the negotiation, is going to end in a failure. But let's say that you were willing to pay up to $5,500. If that's true, you're willing to pay up to $5,500 and I'm willing to accept as low as $5,000, there's an overlap. We are going to strike a deal. There's going to be a deal made between you and me as long as we communicate successfully and the price of the car is going to be somewhere between $5,000 and $5,500. This is where the real skill of negotiation comes in because which of us is the better negotiator is the person who's gonna walk away with the bargain being closer to their preferred outcome. If I'm the much stronger negotiator, I might get you to pay close to the full $5,500 you're willing to pay. And if you're the stronger negotiator, you might get me to come down to the $5,000 that I am willing to accept. Being able to identify where those points are and negotiate around them and and communicate and sort of conceal your own 
intentions and so on. That's part of this game. Now, in the example I gave of buying a used car, there's simply a price attached to this car. There's not a lot of complexity. But in um, many situations with the negotiation, there may be a whole host of things that are being negotiated simultaneously. This is getting us closer to diplomacy. So let's say that I'm negotiating for a job and you're my boss. You're the owner or whatever. You're going you're gonna to be the person who I have to bargain with about the terms of my employment. Well, there are many things that I might want. I might want certain pay. I might want certain time off or certain hours. Maybe I want certain perks. Uh, there's a lot of different things that I could want. I want all of them, but I will accept some combination of them. That can be really a challenge to figure out. Like you're the boss and you think, okay, I want to give this employee, you know, whatever I can minimally to get this person to accept because, of course, the more vacation I give, the more pay, the more perks, you know, that all affects my bottom line. And I, I you know, I want this person to take the job, of course, but I don't want to give them more than is necessary. So if you, you hear me asking for all these different things, you might try to offer me maybe of the four things that I asked for, you would offer me the two that are the least of a burden to you. You know, well, brother board asked me for these uh, four things, but two of them, I don't even care that much about. So how about I say, I'll give you two of those four things that you asked for, but not the remaining two. I'll give you half of what you asked for. Uh, and that will meet halfway. But see, this could be a really clever negotiating point because the two that you're giving me are two that aren't very costly to you, but they may be valuable to me. Your subjective valuation of the four things as the business owner may be different than how I value them subjectively as the employee. So maybe giving me two weeks vacation costs you very little compared to the pay that I'm asking for, this, this a bigger pay, and you're like, no, I'd much rather give you the vacation than that pay increase. But from my point of view, that's what I really wanted. I actually wanted the, I cared much more about having vacation than about increased pay because I want to spend time with my family or whatever the case may be. And the more different things and the more combinations of things that are a part of the negotiation, the more the skill of negotiation per se matters in figuring out the outcome because you might be able to come up with a situation that's uh, the situation may not be zero sum the way it is with like the car price. So the car price example is a zero sum situation for every dollar that you pay for the car. That's a dollar I don't get and vice versa. But when it comes to a, a bunch of different things being negotiated at the same time that we value differently, there may be something you're willing to give and that I want uh, that if you don't care about giving it and I want it very badly. Now, this is where things get really interesting. If you know that the other side is willing to concede something or it's not a big deal to them subjectively, then you know that you can probably get them to concede it very easily and focus your negotiating effort on something that's a little more difficult for them to give up, but that you, you still also really want. So that's why uh, negotiators sometimes act like every single thing you're asking for, all four of these things are incredibly difficult for me to give you. That's really not true. Only two of them are difficult and two of them are quite easy, but I'm going to act like all four are really difficult. So that way, when I concede the two that I didn't really care about, it seems you feel as though you really negotiated with me. Ha ha, I got Brother Board to come down on those two things and he gave them to me. It's great. Bringing this idea down into diplomacy to get really good at negotiating diplomacy, you should realize that there are many different combinations of things that can be negotiated simultaneously with another player. 
And the other player may not, may not have the awareness to realize that there are different ways for them to accomplish this thing that they want. So let's get specific. Let's say that I am France and you are England. And you say, hey, France, I don't want you to have uh, to build a fleet in Brest. I just don't want that. And I'm thinking, I really need to do that. I really need to build this fleet in Brest for some reason. Well, what's the underlying reason why you don't want me to build a fleet in Brest? And well, because it's a danger, it could move into English Channel. Okay, England, listen to me. Move into English Channel. I have no intention to attack you, right? The reason why you're saying you don't want me to build a fleet in Brest is that you don't want me to move into English Channel and then attack you. But what if I just let you into English Channel? Just go there. I'm going to move my fleet into Mid-Atlantic Ocean and then into Western Mediterranean Sea or something like that. But I can't build a fleet in Marseille right now because my army's sitting on top of it. And I simply have to build a fleet. If I build another army, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble long term. I won't even be able to fight Italy. I want to fight Italy, but you have to let me build this fleet. So what England really wants in this situation isn't so much that you not build a fleet in Brest per se, but rather what England wants is for you to not attack or at least to feel safe from a potential attack from you. So if I am willing to tolerate, as France, England being an English channel, if I think, yeah, that's not something I want, I don't want England to be an English channel, but getting attacked by England or not building a fleet in Brest, those are all far worse. And so we get into this interesting situation where I value building a fleet in Brest so much that I'm willing to concede to England, hey, just move your fleet in the English Channel and occupy it. I hope that'll make you feel safe in order to come to some compromise that's between our two goals. So looping this back to my previous point that there can be many things that are being negotiated simultaneously in diplomacy, not just are there things, multiple different things that are happening at the same time, but the different moves and tactics that the players are negotiating are representative of larger concepts that are harder to value. Like what is the value of this player being friendly to me. It's hard to say, right? That's hard. It's hard to put a price tag on that the way you can with the capturing a supply center or something. You might, you might know what it's worth in terms of points or something, you know, in the outcome of the game, uh, if there's a tournament or some scoring system. It's harder to say what's the value of this player being friendly to me. So when you're getting into a negotiation in the beginning of the game of diplomacy, it's worth it to spend effort when possible, to figure out what the player's really getting at or what they want, because they may want some things from you that you can easily give them. Let's say that I am Italy and Austria uh, asks that I not move into Tyrolia and I leave Venice vacant. I might be thinking, you know, I'm brother board. I hardly open that way anyway. Uh, I'd be willing to do that. That's, that's not asking me a lot, uh, something that I usually want to do when I play Italy. I don't want to move and attack Austria immediately. I don't think that's a very good plan most of the time. I may be willing to agree to that, even though from Austria's perspective, it seems like Austria is really trying to get something from me. I'm trying to really get Italy to do this. So if I want Austria to perceive me as very easygoing and... Uh, you know, good friend or something, I may, I may concede that easily or say that I, I wanted to do that anyway. I already did. I already wasn't going to do those moves. I'm, I'm going to move to Piedmont and Puglia or something. Or if I w- want to s- extract some kind of concession from Austria, then even though I want to make that opening, I may act like I don't want to 
in order to get something like, okay, Austria, I hear you, but I expect you to move Vienna to Galicia. So I know that you're not working with Russia right off the bat. You promise to move Vienna to Galicia. I promise not to move to Tyrol or events. I'll move to Piedmont and Apulia or something like that. Can we agree to this? That might be something I want because I want to see if Austria is with me. I want to impede a potential formation of Austria-Russia alliance if I'm going to agree not to attack Austria or something. So even though I end up making the opening that I already wanted to make, I used it as a bargaining chip to, to try to push Austria to move to Galicia. And if Austria promises to bounce Russia and Galicia, or at least to move to Galicia, and then doesn't, then I have learned that Austria was willing to lie to me in 1901, and it's probably because Austria and Russia are working together. And I gained all that knowledge. I learned that Austria and Russia are working together because Austria had was forced to lie to me in order to set that up. And in this way, I gained information and value and affected my relationship with Austria, even though I ended up doing the opening move that I wanted to do all along. And Chris is here. Hey, Chris, we're talking about um, negotiations. Oh, cool. Where I'm going with this is the negotiation process is itself a kind of psychological battlefield where you're trying to learn as much information about the other player's intentions, their desires, what they consider valuable, what they're trying to do. And uh, if you find out that there's overlap, so going back to my previous example, hey, you know, if, I, if I'm willing to sell the car for $5,000 and you're willing to buy it for up to $5,500, then a deal is going to be made. And when we're talking about a diplomacy situation, if we find out, hey, what you want to do and what I want to do and what we're willing to concede to each other this overlaps enough, then maybe an alliance is going to form because both of us have similar enough overlapping expectations of how that alliance is going to play out that we're willing to do it. This is really important in the beginning of the game to know how you think an alliance might play out and to learn how the other player thinks it should happen. Because if you, don't, if you and the other player don't see eye to eye on how that alliance should work, you're going to have difficulties and you may not be able to form an alliance. And uh, even if you think you have formed an alliance, one or two moves in, you're going to start chafing. I'll give an example. Some people have an opinion that the way that Italy and Austria open up the Italy-Austria alliance is that Italy takes Trieste in the beginning, takes it from Austria in 1901 to prevent Austria from having a war. And then they work together from that point on. Now, that's really different than the example I just gave where I imagine myself negotiating with Austria, that I move all my armies away from Austria. If I am an Italian player who thinks that the way that I begin alliance with Austria is Austria just concedes Trieste to me, and the Austrian player doesn't see things that way, you know, from their reference level, from their experience, that the community they've played with, that's outrageous. That's an outrageous demand for Italy to, to ask for such a thing. Well, in that situation, probably alliance is not going to form because Italy thinks that they have to take Trieste in order to be allied, and Austria thinks that that is unacceptable. They might, you know, they might be forced to work together in some way or form, but that's not going to start off well. If the players don't have an overlapping expectation of how that alliance will, will begin or how that, how that tactical situation is going to be resolved, the alliance is going to struggle because their difference is too great. You want to buy the car for $4,000. I want to sell it for $5,000. We don't have an overlap. There's not going to be a successful negotiation. So when I am deciding uh, how I'm going to, who I'm going to ally, 
I'm often really interested in their vision for how the first couple of turns are going to play out or how we resolve some of these more immediate concerns. And if their thought process overlaps enough with my thought process and how that alliance might work, then I start taking them seriously. I don't, I don't play hardball. If I have a player who I think we already just have a natural or natural inclinations for how to play these powers overlaps enough together in an alliance that will probably just intuitively want to do the same things, then I really want to focus on a, having a strong emotional and friendly relationship with this player because that very well could be an alliance that takes me to the end of the game. Either we, we play out to a really good draw or uh, I eventually have to backstab them to win, but it works because our alliance was so successful. Uh, that's, that's a relationship I want to cultivate. Whereas if the player has really different ideas for how the alliance needs to go than I do, even if I want to work with them for whatever reasons, for some strategic reason, or maybe I have no, no alternative, they're the only ally I think I can get, then I might be a bit sterner in the negotiations and say, here are some there are specific concessions I want. I want these things. And maybe even uh, inflate my position a little bit and ask for things that I don't really want and don't expect to get so that they're negotiating me down to my real, my real position. Because if I open up with my real position and then they negotiate me down, uh, we're not going to reach an agreement because they're, they're trying to negotiate me below uh, what I consider to be minimally acceptable. Some of that thematically overlaps with some of my thoughts about like that operational picture we talked about in that recent episode you posted just regarding trying to figure out like what are the common areas, what the areas of agreement? I mean, this is the nature of compromise, right? I mean, if you can't find areas of agreement and by virtue of that have some level of compromise and you have no foundation for an alliance, but obviously also it signals to you if you can't find that, that even if you can manage to negotiate in the way you're talking about, you still need to work on figuring out a way to swap this person out, even if they're the only ally available at the time. That gets back to like diplomatic encirclement and things like that we've talked about previously, where you're trying to form alliance relationships and don't make, maybe don't have an immediate payoff for you now because someone might be tied up elsewhere. Like if you're Austria and you really need to work with Italy, but they just aren't very reasonable or aren't very good or whatever the case may be, very suitable, generally speaking. And kind of trying to cultivate that relationship with France, and when France has an opportunity, if they can figure out their Western Triangle issues, they can come and uh, basically swap uh, or Italy out for you. So, I can share two extremely different examples from my experience that may be interesting of a, of a very straightforward and easy negotiation of alliance, and one that was very tense on purpose. So, in my first example. Some years ago, I was playing a game of press diplomacy that was a reasonably high-level game in which I got Turkey. I really hit it off with the Russian player right at the start. We just seemed to have compatible ways of thinking about things. And we exchanged successful press. I thought it was, I thought it was good. We're going to play an alliance, for sure. That In my mind, we're going to play this Turkey-Russia alliance. We're going to play the juggernaut. It's just a question of how. What is the best way to play it? And I said, let's do that crazy opening where Turkey opens to Armenia and then to Sebastopol with an army and Russia goes to Black Sea and then Constantinople. And what this does is Turkey passing through Sebastopol in 1901 means that Russia can no longer build a fleet unless Sebastopol is first recaptured. And Russia passing through Constantinople means that Russia will eventually no longer have a fleet in Black Sea that can backstab Turkey. And so what Turkey gets out of this is a totally secure tactical situation around the Black Sea. 
And what Russia gets out of this is a fleet in the Mediterranean in 1902, which is an incredible tactical achievement for Russia, having all kinds of long-term implications. And for the alliance itself, it means all your guns are blazing because now every single unit that you have uh, for the Russia-Turkey alliance can be put moving westward. You don't have a fleet that just chills out in Black Sea or Romania or something like that. Or some players will try to destroy a Russian fleet in the situation. But whatever. The point is, we agreed. We agreed to this opening. And uh, we did it. And we didn't backstab each other. And then we went on to play a juggernaut. We could have played to a two-way draw if we had uh, not backstabbed. We did the true juggernaut thing of just crushing every single other power. They were so sure that we were going to attack each other or something. And having all those units in position was really cool. Now, I've only done this once in my entire career playing diplomacy. I played diplomacy for something like 10 years, and I've only done this one time. I've played plenty of juggernauts in these 10 years, but the, that particular opening exactly once. And I was only willing to do it that time because I, I just felt it. I could really tell that we really wanted to be allies. I, I could trust the other player. I had no hesitation, and it paid off. It could, it could have gone horribly for me or the other player, but it wasn't the case. It was so easy. In that situation, I wasn't negotiating with the other player in a hardball sense of, you know, what can I extract from them? But rather, it seems like we overlap on everything. Just how far can this go? It wasn't, it wasn't a zero-sum situation, but rather, how far can we take this alliance? And the answer was, we were able to play Turkey and Russia as one giant power right from the start. And that was really cool. What was the response that you got from other countries with the first story? Like, how did that, how did that look from the other country's perspective? I'm straining my memory to remember how the players reacted to it. If I recall correctly, we tried to sell it as we were backstabbing each other and that we were really angry and so on. I don't know if they bought it. You did try to sell it. Yeah, yeah. So that I so so my opening as Turkey was Constantinople to Bulgaria, Ankara to Constantinople, and Smyrna to Armenia, and then Russia opened to Black Sea. So that looks like at least you can superficially sell it as I, Turkey, did agree to work with Russia, but that jerk immediately backstabbed me and took Black Sea. So I'm going to attack. And the other players went like, <laughs> Turkey trusted Russia, but he shouldn't have. What a joker. Something like that, right? They, they didn't were able to perceive it that way. And Russia sold it that way as well. And so the subsequent move, it was a lot more obvious what was happening because I moved my fleet out of Constantinople despite being uh, so-called under attack. And Russia made no effort to cover Sevastopol despite it being vulnerable. So I think the jig was up at that point. But then I built, my, I built a fleet. And so at that point, we had three fleets in the Mediterranean. And I think Italy or, or Austria or whatever, somehow they had harassed each other. Right? They didn't think that they needed to ally based on what happened in 1901. And that's in spring 1901. Now, I have an opposite situation I'm going to share a war story from, which is uh, in media wars. The situation was that I was Germany and I had recovered from a pretty bad opening. I was succeeding somewhat and I was working with Russia who had initially attacked me, but we had started working together. Russia was asking me to attack France. And the thing is, I wanted to attack France. That was the next logical thing for us to do in this Germany-Russia alliance was attack France. Right. For me to attack France. But this was not an alliance of a high level of trust. This was an alliance of 
convenience between two very strong players who probably were trying to solo win, if at all possible. And we saw that cooperating was at that moment, the thing that would make us both more likely to be able to later solo win. As much as I could, I feigned that I wasn't willing to attack France unless Russia made me a tactical concession over one of the English home centers and who was going to control it. Uh, if I recall correctly, watching Captain Mean, aka Diplostrats, watching the YouTube video later, if I recall correctly, I think he knew that I was doing this. <laughs> I think he, he, in his video, he's like, ah, Brother Board is, he's like faking it. You know, he, he, this, isn't, this isn't his true negotiating position. He's just insisting that I give him this concession. He did agree to what I asked for, and I did attack France. And this is a really interesting moment because it is a decent demonstration of how, uh, how you might be able to get something just by sheer negotiation, just by playing hardball and being so stubborn that I, I had no leverage. I, the only thing I could say was that I'm not going to attack France, which was something that I already wanted to do and logically had to do from my position. But that's something you can do sometimes, that I'm saying, that you can, you can as, they, as they say proverbially, squeeze blood from a stone. Can you do that? So in, in a proverb, it's impossible. Uh, but I'm trying to say that a good negotiator can turn a bargaining position where you have a totally empty hand. You have nothing really to bargain with, but you can act like you do and maybe get the other person to give you something in return. And so uh, I was willing to bargain so hard and, and run right up onto the limit of the other player's patience or tolerance uh, for my uh, very stubborn attitude because it was a a challenging alliance situation between two very good players who were only working together for convenience and not for some ultimate purpose. I assume you didn't try to sell that too hard, that, that in, extra English home center. And that way, maybe it was an advantage on trying to sell it too hard. You tried to sell something like that too hard. It might look like you really care. I think a key thing that you can bring into a negotiation with diplomacy is to understand that there is much more that you can achieve or attain besides just agreements from players or promises to make specific moves, is that you can make logical inferences or force certain logical inferences based on the things that you're negotiating about. For example, something that I like to see is a quid pro quo, where if I agree to do this, then you agree to do that, and we're both going to do this thing. And the reason why I really want to see that the player honors their promise is that if they don't, then I can infer all kinds of information. It's not just that they lied to me, but they lied to me for some reason, for some ultimate strategic reason. What is that reason? Why did they think that this would work out for them? What are the other players saying? And I can infer all kinds of information about the alliance structure or whatever that's difficult to divine. So um, sometimes what I'm trying to figure out is not that they make a particular move. I'm not trying to get them to, to do move A or to do move B. I don't care whether they do A or B. I just want them to promise me that they're going to do A or promise me that they're going to do B so I can find out if they lied. So even if they didn't follow through on the extra, extra English home center, however it worked out, would tell you something useful. You have to think on another level, right? It's not, it's not about that I'm trying to get them to do it, but trying to see what they'll say. So sometimes they might say, what you're asking for, dude, 
that's something I simply cannot do. Like, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example. Let's say that uh, I am uh, Russia and I have a fleet in Sweden. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to get England to agree that I should build a second fleet in St. Petersburg. And England's like, there's just no way. There's just no way I can agree to your building a second fleet in St. Petersburg. That's just too hostile to me. If you do that, you know, there's, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to oppose you somehow. And the purpose of negotiating about this may not be to decide whether I'm going to build a fleet in St. Petersburg or not, but rather uh, some diplomatic effect that I want to have on England, some psychological effect. So it turns out I didn't want to build a fleet in St. Petersburg at all. I never wanted to. I simply suggested it to England. So that when England says, hey, man, don't build a fleet in St. Petersburg, that's hostile to me. And I go, okay, I hear what you're saying, and you know, I don't want to antagonize you, so I won't do that. So that the English player believes that I am influenced by what they say. So I wanted to build an army in Warsaw all along. That's all I was going to do. I was probably going to do that no matter what. I didn't really care what anyone had to say. But I toyed with the idea in my press to England that I might build a fleet in St. Petersburg, but I'm acting as though I decided that I was influenced by England and I built the army in Warsaw in order to create in England's mind the perception that I can be influenced. This is really valuable because if players think that you, you can be influenced by them, they want to keep you around. They want to keep you around because they think they can work with you or negotiate with you later in the game. And so sometimes I bring up ideas or negotiating points with other powers that I have no intention to push. In fact, I have every intention to concede the thing I'm asking for, but it's all just to show. It's all to create the perception that I am a person who is willing to negotiate. Uh, this isn't exactly a counterpoint because I definitely think that there's a lot of validity to what you're saying. I've talked about that before, but were considered also the phrase it doesn't hurt to ask until it does and kind of the unintended consequences of asking for things and then the mere asking of the thing creates steps in the person's mind and maybe you either want to take advantage of them or you're trying to get something over on them uh, that's definitely a possibility if you pester people too much or ask them for too many things that they consider to be unreasonable they may take a disliking to you but in my personal experience most players don't take offense to a true request. And I'll make a distinction here. Uh, this is really relevant to negotiations, I think, of the distinction between a request and a demand. What makes something a request is that there's no consequences, no indirect threat of consequences if it's not honored. What makes it a demand is that there's going to be some direct consequences if it's not honored. So if I say, Germany, I would really like it if you built a second fleet this turn. You know, that's something that I would consider beneficial and I would like it and build that second fleet. And Germany says, well, I think I'm not going to. I'm probably going to build it on it. But, well, that's all right. I mean, you do what you got to do. But I, I'm just letting you know that I would, if it were a fleet, I would, I would like that and I'd be willing to help you out. But, you know, do what you got to do. It's no problem. It's not. That's the request. Demand is Germany, build a second fleet or I'll have no choice but to kick you out of Belgium because I can't abide by a second fleet being there. And if you don't do as I'm asking, I'm going to have to change sides, something like that. In practice, there can be a blurry line between requests and demands, but that I'm saying that if you talk to the other players in the form of requests, by saying, hey, here's something that you could do for me, if you're willing to do it and you did, I would really like that. But if you didn't, no hard feelings. 
they usually have an unlimited appetite for that kind of conversation. They won't, they won't take offense. They won't get hard feelings. If you just try to ask them to do things or, and don't get bitter about it when they don't. If you demand things from other players, if you insist that they do X, Y, and Z and threaten them, if they don't do it, they'll get tired of that real fast. And you should do that only as a last resort, in my opinion. So are you thinking then in your experience that the desire or the, the appeal of, of being appealed to or the appeal of being sought after for one's opinion, unless you're pestering someone or like you said, overtly just blackmailing them or threatening them, that feeling of, oh, this person is seeking out my, my view on this kind of overrides maybe what, what, what might be thought of as like suspicion in people's minds that the person is asking for this thing that they don't really care about because they're trying to snip out an advantage. Well, it's definitely possible to be patronizing or to do a poor job of talking to other players and negotiating with them. But in my personal experience, diplomacy players are playing the game because they want to talk about diplomacy. And even when they're not, even right here, we're not even playing a diplomacy match together. We're just talking to each other about diplomacy and talking about the match that you're in with the other players. That's usually very attractive to them, that they're, that they're, they're playing a game of diplomacy because that's what they like to do. They're usually that kind of person. As long as you're not offending them or antagonizing them somehow, I think it's pretty hard to have a bad interaction. I think any positive attention is welcome for most diplomacy players. I'm not saying that's, there's no exception. But as a rule of thumb, finding things that you can talk to the other player about that, are, that have some positive feel to them, that's a good choice because it, it puts a good mood in the relationship between you and the other players. And being understood by your rival players as someone who does talk, as someone who does negotiate, as someone who is willing to talk things out or concede a point or whatever the case may be, establishing that reputation with your rivals is incredibly valuable because it means that they don't think that they have to just destroy you <laughs> in order to have right. the, the game go their way. Yeah, they have the perception that well, this person is reasonable. It doesn't matter like how this turned out. It matters that they, they're able to have the conversation and walk away from it regardless of the result, remain their, retain their reasonableness. How would you handle if like, someone promised you something and, he, and you promised him something, uh, you followed through, but he didn't? How do you respond to that? I think that depends on the context and the particulars of what the promises were. I'll go even one step further and say it depends on what can be inferred from the fact that they didn't keep their promise. In diplomacy, lying to other players is a limited resource. You can only lie so much before the other players just don't trust a word you're saying or just want revenge on you for so much lying. So judicious diplomacy players, wise players, they, they lie, but they do so for a reason. They, and they ex- usually expect uh, some kind of big payoff for doing so. So for instance, if I'm England and France has lied their way into English Channel, that tells me quite a bit because being an English channel is usually like not necessarily that great for France and like getting bounced out of English channels also not that great. Most French players prefer to open to Mid-Atlantic Ocean because of what it implies or and what, what can be gained or lost from being an English channel, especially diplomatically. So if the French player thought it was a cool idea 
to lie their way into English Channel, the French player probably believes that Germany or Russia or both are going to help them take me, England, down. They probably believe that or they would have used up such an important resource right away. Uh, they think that I'm going down and therefore their betrayal right off the bat is not really a big deal. They probably also think they're not going to be attacked by Italy because they committed so far in that direction right off the bat. I can infer all that. I can infer a bunch of stuff. I mean, I guess the, the French player could just be really, really uh, bad or it's the first game they ever played, but assuming that's not the situation and they know what they're doing, these are things that I can infer. So now that I've made that inference, my response is going to be context dependent on does it look like Germany or Russia or both are also hostile to me? Because what I really want to accomplish strategically is to end this situation where my rivals are trying to work together to threaten me. The way to end that might be to try to fight off France as best I can, because maybe France was wrong and Germany and Russia just wanted to see if they could bait in, uh, France into making that opening, or Italy did. And it really has no, no implications about their intentions. Or maybe they really do want to attack me. So if it's true that France was just baited into attacking me right away, or France really wanted to do that, France has great anti-English sentiment, then probably my plan is going to be to fight off France as best I can and make those get alliance elsewhere. But if the situation is that there is a France-Franco-German alliance and the French move to the English Channel is simply a manifestation of the Franco-German alliance, then... I might try to break up that alliance by working with France. That is an alternative where I say, hey, it looks like you got me in this channel. But I don't want to fight. I don't want to fight France and Germany together. Uh, the channel is yours. Take it and take Belgium or whatever you want. I'm going to leave my army over here in Great Britain uh, to keep it safe. I'm not going to fight you. You can do whatever you want. But don't fight me. And I'll indeed, I'll help you against Germany if you want, as long as you don't attack me. As long as you don't attack me, I'll help you against Germany. I might end up helping the player who lied to me because that seems like the best way to try to break up that alliance. And, you know, maybe I could convince the French player to take Belgium with that fleet and kind of get it out of my hair or something. It can happen. I, I played matches, you know, where this happens, where France opens this way, but I talk them out of it later on. You have to figure out what is happening in the match strategically in order to know what is the right response to how the player lied. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think the context is the most important thing there. What led them to do something like that? So, especially it sounds like we're talking about like the beginning of the game, right? Why take the swing so early? How deep could really their their plan be, their plan and plot and strategy be at this point that it's not possible you can like work your way in, like I'm like saying there. A good diplomacy player remains objective throughout. Doesn't doesn't react negatively, right? Right, Blake? When you when you agree? Yeah, I think that the time for. Um just all out seeking revenge on somebody depends on what is the strategic situation. Like if, okay, I can no longer win. Uh, this is a hopeless cause. And I just want to show everybody that if I go down, I'm taking you with me so that players think twice about stabbing me in the future. That might be the time to do that. But like 1901, you know, no way, like you can recover from a lot. Wouldn't make game ending suicide moves, uh, revenge moves based on that. I also thought about, I could use this, this story as an example, how to react. I once played a match in which I was England. This is, this is a pretty high level match. Uh, I was England allied to France and we hit it off with a great alliance right from the start. We prevented Germany from getting even one build 
uh, due to trickery. It was awesome. And the way this alliance played out, the French player told me his each and every move in advance, every turn. And I think I shared all of my moves with him as well. After a few years, and I, we, we completely crushed the board. Turkey was the only power left and uh, maybe was potentially going to go down, actually, depending on what we did. But the French player moved exactly one piece inconsistent with what he said. And so in my mind, this was a pretty dangerous symptom. It was like an army, a fleet in Marseille that moved to Spain's south coast instead of Gulf of Lyon or something, something like that. Everything else moved consistent with what I said. But it now created a tactical situation where it was possible for him to get away with backstabbing me somewhat unless I reacted immediately. So I did what I had to do, and I reacted by moving every single one of my pieces into the position I was going to need to block off France and did whatever it took to, to cooperate with Turkey. And we ended up, the France did backstab me, but France was prevented from getting a solo win and we had a three-way draw. And so in that situation, even though that player's incorrect information, they broke, they told me they had like 12 or 13 pieces and moved 12 of them exactly as they said, and only one wrong. So you could say that they were only less than 10% lying. And if you take all the turns together where they had told me so much, in this alliance, that, that probably was the tiniest, tiniest little inconsistency. It wasn't anger-inducing, and it wasn't a backstab or anything like that. It was just inconsistent with what they said, this tiny move, and made it possible for them to set up to backstab me. So I reacted as if he was, and I was right. And it had nothing to do with the emotions or anything like that, just like just, just reading the board and understanding how things would play out. So in that context, in that endgame context, the one tiny little lie had a huge implication because if I didn't react to it, that player was going to solo win probably. And you got that just because you always shared your moves together between each other? Yeah, our habit for turn after turn for all the preceding turns had been to discuss each and every one of our moves and, and play like one giant power. After the match, he asked me, hey, if I hadn't have made that move, would you have reacted to defend yourself? And I said, no. <laughs> I was willing to play to play this as far as it would go. But I wanted to see what would happen. You know, just how, how far can we take this England-France alliance before somebody goes for the win? Right. And in his mind, it's a pretty smart move, because even if you found it out this time, because it's so, it would have been so easy to have missed it. I've called it a mistake, man, how the orders were being entered even. That's right. I mean, he, he tried to cover it up and he did pretty good, but I held firm correctly. In my mind, I didn't, I didn't give in. And I thought, it's just my spider senses tingling. I think I'm about to get attacked. And so I laid the, the diplomatic groundwork to work together with Turkey. And so France attacked me. It didn't work and voted draw. Okay, we're coming to the end of the scheduled time we had for the diplomacy dojo. I think that was a pretty cool talk. The first time I've been able to join, so I'm glad I was able to pop in. Yeah, thanks for coming, Chris. Thanks for being here, Ronnie. I think this was a, a really good conversation. I, I hope to see you all uh, in a future week. Catch you later. Bye, guys. This episode was made possible by the generous support of people like you. For more information, visit patreon.com slash brotherboard. You can learn more from your board brother at brotherboard.com. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe, share, and review. 
Thanks to Loyalty Freak Music for the theme music, It Feels Good to Be Alive too.